This podcast episode has a guest with a really diverse range of experience. He was professional footballer at Manchester United, having been picked up at the same time that Alex Ferguson arrived at the club. He then left to go to Exeter City uh, before retiring prematurely with a serious back injury. So Alan Tong, my guest, is someone that reflects on the high-performance culture at Manchester United as well as adapting to life at another club and then having to deal with leaving the sport that he loved at the age of just 24. The second area of of interest is that um, Alan has picked up as time has gone on, more and more interest in sports psychology. And within his PhD study in this area, he's looked a lot at areas of welfare with players, particularly around their experience of being deselected and dealing with transitions um, throughout their career. So it was a pleasure to speak to Alan today at the Etihad campus, just by where he works at UCFB. That of transition between mm. one career and one route, and now one which is 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 similar, but as we've said just before, there also really different the education side of things to that. So, just to to start off, probably a question you've been asked quite a few times. What what was your route into? To being at Man United um, as a as a youngster, how did you get picked up to be in that position? Well, I think I think back, back when I was in the system, the, the sort of um, there was none of this under nines, under tens going into academies, anything like that. It was like almost like a like a system of schools first, like schoolboy football, grassroots football, representing your town. I play for Bolton Schoolboys. I managed to get into a county side. So it, it, I was about 14, 15 before United scouted me. So I was, I was a little bit older. So I'd kind of cut my teeth coming through the system in, in relation to, you know, play, playing with my mates first of all. And then, you know, as, as, as you kind of improve your game, you got picked up by your representative teams and things like that. So, so yeah, it was, um, I got picked up playing for Manchester County by Man United. They used to, used to send a scout down to come and look at my grassroots side on a Sunday morning and there was a few lads in there that they were interested interested in but um, yeah was, I think I think it was about 14 and a half when I first got invited down and they used to train in there I think it was called the School of Excellence back then and they used to train on a Monday night and a Thursday night at the, at the Cliff training ground and uh, I, I started that for a month or two and then I got invited to an extended trial over Christmas and at the end of that trial, I got sort of called in by, it was a lad called Joel Brown, he was a youth development officer, and he said, we'd like to offer you schoolboy forms, and then um, it was called a YTS back then, I did a two-year apprentice. So so my, my route into United was kind of like, I, I suppose a little bit later than a lot of players are now, you know, you're reading that clubs have got like seven, eight-year-olds now that they're getting looked at, so... Yeah. Now that's yeah. interesting, so you, you played... A lot of football outside of the system before you ended up in that. Whereas, sure. yeah, there'll be the, the kids of seven or eight who seem to be yeah. they'll they'll be learning a lot while they're in the, the sure, system. Yeah. 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 So yeah. people who are a little bit younger than, than us would wouldn't perhaps remember the the cliff now with yeah, it being sure. Harrington. Yeah. Now, am I right in saying there that the setup was that it? Whereas now, say we're sat 
quite near to, to Man City's uh, academy setup, where that's very separate from where the first team would train. The cliff is my understanding right that there was um, uh, a lot more players there, so everything yeah. from the, the younger players through to the first team. Absolutely, Mark. It was like a unified building, you know, where as you'd have. There'd be three, there was three or four changing facilities like youth team, reserves, first team, uh, and then obviously the coaches' room. And then upstairs, you had like a canteen area, a physio room, a little gym with weights in. And it was kind of you were all in there together, and um, used to get a lot of a lot of activity training with the first team lads as well. Like sometimes you used to mix up all the youngsters and the reses and, and the first team lads in like five a side scenario. Or, or you might get you might get somebody in the morning that says to you, uh, the first team want an eleven a side this morning against the reses. So. So I think I think that that kind of exposure to, to those lads and seeing them up close I think is re- really beneficial. Whereas in maybe in the modern day football it is kind of a little bit more separated and segregated now. So so, you, so you're there from the, the the later part of the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. So we're probably we're looking at the name that comes to mind as a Coventry City fan is uh, Strachan would have been there yeah, at the time. Yeah, that, that's correct, yes. Yeah. And Robson yeah. and people Brian like Robson, this. Norman Whiteside, yeah. So you've got some pretty mm. heavy players Absolutely, there. yeah, and some crackers. As, at that young age, apart from their abilities with the ball and, and what have you, what made them stand out compared to, say, players that were in the reserves? Yeah, I think, I think probably just the character. You know, I think... I think it's, it's funny, Matt, because, you know, obviously going back in generations here, United had a spell where they were just chasing the league title. That that, that was what they wanted again. And, you know, and that was a... I, th- I think it was almost like a sort of a... In, in a term, a monkey on your back. They wanted they wanted to win that league again. And I think I think when Ron Atkinson left in sort of mid-80s and Fergie came in, it did take time for him to get it right. You know, it, you look at the pressures now of the financing modern football and... And the and the pressure to get results quickly that didn't happen for Sir Alex, but what he did do that was quite interesting was he's almost like built the club again. Mm. And he, I remember someone telling me that when he first arrived, he was he was straight in to see Sir Matt Busby about how he'd done it. He was he was straight into history books about Man United and where the club had come from and what the club's identity was, but. You know that that takes time to do, and it. He, he came '86, and they didn't win the first trophy until 1990. And in, in between that, there was a lot of like poor league form. They were finishing 13th, 7th, 6th, you know, not not really what the fans demanded. So he was under a bit of pressure. But it was someone's foresight or someone's patience. I believe Sir Bobby Charlton had a lot to do with this that gave him that time to build a platform that went on to, to achieve some, some unbelievable things. Yeah. So we read and hear still in 2019, years after Ferguson's retirement, the impact that he had across not just the club but the world of football. And I remember reading something, Marcello Lickney was saying when they were both managers that people in, on the continent would look at Ferguson as the exemplar of someone who'd had that time at a club and, as you said, built things and, and done that. From a perspective of a young player starting off, a, 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 touch, a touch distant from him in terms of him not being your immediate manager at the, at the start, what kind of radiated out from him across the club to, to all areas rather than just his players? Yeah, I, th- I think I think 
it was just he demanded high standards Mark I think that was the, probably the best way to, to sort of describe that and, and I think slowly but surely I think when a manager comes into a club they might identify things that really need addressing or changing and you know, I remember him saying to so in, in autobiographies that he's wrote that he wanted to build the youth system again and get, get more players through the, the youth system into the first team I remember him changing some of the the uh, the dietary stuff in the Cliff Canteen. It, you know, it, back then it sounds ridiculous, it, but obviously sports science has rocketed all this last period. But you, you had like sausage and chips for dinner on a Friday, <laughs> on a Friday, didn't you? Yeah. And, and you had like you know the, the, the lads who were there with me at that time. We, we all have a laugh about it and say like. You know, you're getting like chocolate sponge and custard yeah. for afters and stuff like that. And you think, I've got an A-team game or a, or a reserve game the following day. And, you know, that in your system, like, not, not good for energy whatsoever. So slowly but surely, I think, like, you started to change things. You have, like, some of the youngsters eating porridge for breakfast and a lot of fruit started appearing in the, in the canteen. And, and obviously, you had to try and get rid of this drinking culture that was back then as well, you know, like... You, you, you talk about the football, football in its entirety being like working, entrenched in working class roots, and uh, we, had, we had a bit of a drinking culture that, that kind of followed me after I left United as well into my next club, Exeter City, where a lot of lads had sort of been trained in the morning, and then yeah. the, the idea then of, a, of an afternoon would be either to go to a pub and have a few beers, or to play pool all afternoon, or, or you'd find you'd find yourself. Going into a bookmaker so to watch racing and you know not not constructive really yeah. to, to high performance environments. Mm. Well, that's interesting in terms of what we will get onto in a, in a few moments. Mm. That this idea of 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 transitioning between one career in, in football and then moving into something else, whether it's in the game or something related. And what I've observed a lot more in say in, in, in cricket has been players making use of their free time to then make those plans now we could look at that and say cricket may be seen that there's a lot of players within that who have gone through university education who will be a bit more aware of these things and as you say for, for a lot of players in, in in football it may have been that the education was was there as an afterthought so for, for, you, for yourself we'll come to where you are now yeah. in, in a bit but yeah. how important was your kind of formal education while the football was going well the thing is Mark I think I think I've done sort of presentations on this before to, before today in different in different places around that I, I had quite a strong educational background coming through the system so so almost not not isolated in that respect but rare I'd say at that time where you had quite a lot of players who really didn't engage with the schooling and, it, and it, it really, really goes as deep as when they were coming into the club. Some of them struggled to read and write. And I, you know, I, I remember doing a, uh, we used to do like coaching awards back then or, or referee exams, you know, just, just to bolt on a few qualifications around, around you being a player. And some, some of them struggled to write answers like on, on down on, on pieces of paper back then, which I thought was, was quite bizarre. But, but because I had like a reasonable academic background, I'd done quite well at school. I kind of not not had to not had to face a bit of Mickey taking in a way, but I certainly at times didn't feel part of a group because you had you had two or three who was reasonably academic, and you had a few who weren't. And what happened then, man? We used to it used to be split. So anybody who got five GCSEs A to C used to go and do a B Tech national, 
and if you had lower than that you went to a college in Manchester and did like an MVQ and it, I'm, I'm not saying that there was a rift in the dressing room but there was a certain yeah division yeah. a division and, and more often than not the lads who were kind of following the academic route just to, had to face a little bit of Mickey taking as well, mm. you know. So, but you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I stuck with that because ultimately, you know, we can never see what's coming in the future. But you know, unfortunately, my career was finished at 24 years old. I had to do something else, and if I'd have not engaged with my BTEC national back then, you know, it might have been a you know I might have been a sort of a in a position where it would have been like what, what do I really do next? Yeah. You know, your, your options and your choices are, are, are really limited. Yeah. So, having kept your options open was would still have been, I guess, at that point uh, as a fallback because you, your yeah. eyes are on the prize of, of, the, of, of the, the career in football. Sure. And being at a club like Manchester United, even though, say, yeah, at the time Fergie's taken over, there's been a, a lack of success, which has been quite. Um, uh, quite stark compared to the rich history that the club's had. So no one gets in the position w- uh, for not being a, a good player. What was it that that, that, that caused the, the move away from Man United to Exeter, as you've said? Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's a tricky one because you know, for, for Sir Alex said to me that he felt I just lacked a yard of pace to get into into proper first-team contention. I've been on the fringes here and there, played in a couple of friendlies. and but Unfortunately, back then, we had quite a big squad. and The, the trouble sometimes, Mark, with playing full-back is a lot of lads can turn around to full-back. So, so if you think of pecking orders, I was kind of like... If, if Viv Anderson wasn't fit back then, they'd put Clayton Blackmore at right-back. If, if Clayton wasn't fit, they had the option of Lee Martin at right-back. Dennis Irwin arrived and then all of a sudden you're like 5th, 6th, 7th in line even Paul Ince played there you know, and, and that, that was the kind of the difficulty that you're facing but you know it's difficult because everybody ha- everybody develops in different ways and and you know from an emotional intelligence perspective I think I think because of my personality and my identity I'm usually, I'm usually more of a like kind of sympathetic to other people but football's a ruthless game, and when you've got when you get your opportunity, you've got to get in with the first team squad in training and kind of show them what you can do. If you don't do that, you, you'll never you'll never do it. So I may be looking back in retrospect and thinking about if there's anything I could have done better, maybe a little bit more forceful, and maybe a, maybe you know, I've, I've I've got my um, I've got my old logbook at home that Eric Harrison had filled in for me, and it's interesting just to to to, to read that every week because he, he makes comments about it. And he, and he does mention there on a few occasions got to communicate more got to communicate more and, and maybe he said if you want to be a top player you've got to develop that personality to be a top player you know, and, and maybe maybe that little bit of shyness in a way I don't know maybe, maybe a little bit of quietness although it's not 100% because like, there's been a few pros like that Dennis Irwin didn't really say much but he did his talking on the field but breaking into something as an apprentice I think you've just got to develop that little bit of not cockiness, not brashness, but I think just that little bit of ego to say, I'm as good as you guys and I'm going to show it in that in this situation. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. yeah. And it's also interesting to hear of the idea of 
a, a, a log or a journal that's being kept there. We, a lot of people associate that with a m much more modern perspective in sport. But then I'm, I would I would think again, Harrison when he talked about by the, the, all the guys that have come through that that system with such um, such awe almost about how he managed to to, to, to be. The, cat the catalyst in a lot of these players' careers. Um, just with the final kind of bit with, with, with United at this point, how much how much coordination would there be between um, Eric Harrison and Alec Ferguson in terms of if they're, they're planning out where they want their team to be in a, in a, in a few years? Were they, were they, was it discreet or was there quite a lot of overlap in what they were planning? Two, two similar personalities, Mark, really. Both very... Both very ruthless when when they wanted to be, you know, they would they wouldn't hold back in dressing rooms, you know, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know because my, when when I've come into my educational journey and my teaching journey, I've kind of like I, I understand standards and I understand about timekeeping and and good dress and but what I don't agree with is like screaming and ranting and raving at a young 16, 17 year old because I don't think that does any any, any favours and I, th I think over this last period I'm not I'm not saying it's not still there because it may well be in the lower leagues but the styles now of modern managers seem to be more player centred your peps your clocks um, you know you look at Oli Solskjaer you know not, not saying that when the opportunity to have a blast and lose your temper comes they probably would do that but they just they just seem a little bit more Pochettino's another one they, they seem a little bit more emotionally intelligent and in how to get the best out of players you know may, maybe the days of ranting and raving that that's gone now it should have it should have gone really and and they've kind of they, they use their experiences and their and their wisdom in a way that there's a slightly different approach that can just work just as effective yeah okay so for for, for anyone who was coming through with, with United at that point you'd get fairly similar treatment yeah. at the youth level going through there so I suppose even if some of the the kind of hairdryer moments were there yeah. it's fairly cons consistent I suppose yeah. the way they applied it so from from being uh, be, being let go at United you, you were at Exeter City mm. after there for that's five right. years is that's that right, right. Yeah. yeah yeah so Clearly, that's a, a, a very different club, different yeah. amb uh, ambitions, expectations. Yeah. Yeah. How how easy or hard was that to adapt to life in a in a much smaller club? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was interesting. It was it was tougher because it's levels, isn't it? You you sort of you, you play with like top professionals and. And as you drop down the leagues, you know they're not they're not as good as for our first division players back then, and and it, you kind of have to adapt. But the good thing about Exeter, Mark, was they had like a World Cup winning manager as the manager at the time called Alan Ball, and and he was just you know he, he was like very very similar to to Fergie and Eric Harrison in relation to they just demanded high standards all the time, and, he, and if you didn't live up to them high standards, he did let you know about it. But looking at it. On the other side of the fence, you're thinking you, you're working with like League One players, and you've got to adapt your style to. You're, they're not as good as you were. That you know that's just the fact of the matter. And um, and you know and that that's sometimes why maybe elite level players struggle to make a mark in management. Yeah. You know, there's not there's not a lot of what you could classify as elite level players who've been successful. You might have the odd pocket here and there, but you know you think of lads like your Roy Keynes or your Brian Robsons maybe have a little bit of success, but certainly nothing nothing to shout about. 
um, you know, John Barnes had a go at it and didn't really work out. Paul Ince had a go at it, didn't really work out. And I think one of the big reasons is they can't they can't really resonate with the lads that they're working with sometimes. You know. Yeah, it must be hard to to be to be seeing your kind of mate describing or instructing something mm. and you've got in your mind's eye how you do it and yeah. then people not being able to, to do that yeah. so yeah. yeah so I think I remember reading somewhere else that in terms of football and any sport being about opinions um, for, for, for Ferguson saying he felt you lacked a bit of pace mm. Alan Ball thought that yeah. you, you were quick well I spoke to Ryan Giggs as well a couple of weeks ago about you know, I got him on like a little 20-25 minute podcast asking a few questions about his journey into football and I asked him at the end like what, what read the question sort of thing like what was Alan Tong like as a player and he said like you weren't rapid rapid but you were quick enough to make me think about you know I'd, I'd need to do something different in training games yeah. or something so you're thinking well Ryan's got an opinion as a player well like Fergie said you're lucky you had a pay so so sometimes Mark it is very opinion driven isn't it yeah you know yeah. that's interesting yeah, yeah. so you, how, you, your career ended at the age of 24 yeah what what was it that, that caused that? Yeah, unfortunately I picked up a really, really serious back injury. Um, I, 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 had a, I had a period where I was just started getting pins and needles in my legs and my feet and I was stupid, I don't know why I was doing this, but I kept playing on it for quite a while because I thought it'll clear up, I'll be alright. I was, I, was, I was chasing a new contract. That's probably like one of the worst things you could do. And... Um, I went and seen the physio and he said, well, we'll have to send you for an MRI scan. I went down to French Hospital in Bristol. They had a look at me and said, you're going to have to have an operation. You back, your bottom of your back's in a bit of a mess. So, so following that, I had like screws and plates put in. Uh, I had a bit of a rehabilitation on it, about six months, nine months, and I was still getting pins and needles again, so I had to have more surgery. And after that second bout of surgery, man, I sort of like surgery, so I, I don't know if you're going to day-to-day training and playing I don't know if that, this is the right thing because I was always petrified like if I went up for a cross or I was challenging someone and I got like a knee in my back, bottom of my back as well and I, you're thinking I need, I need to make a call on this so I thought to myself yeah I think it's probably the, the wisest thing to do is, is unfortunately call it a day so, so you called it a day there yeah. at, at a time where a lot of players would not even have reached their peak no um, We've touched a little bit on your education, your background education, which had set up some things there. Yeah. Must have still been scary to, to leave Ooh, the game you love like. Huge, usually because you know at the end of the day, I, I had like a BTEC national, and I had a couple of coaching qualifications. But it's finding work that I tried to get in Exeter, give me a little bit of work on the football and the community schemes. But it tended to be very sporadic. It was like, oh, Alan, can you do Easter? Can you do summer holidays? But I needed something like daily because obviously, like us all, we've got bills to pay and you know things to things to sort of run like your car and and, and in, intermittent money coming in wasn't really you know it, it just it just wasn't working. So so I think I think I'm probably you know, the most honest thing I can say to you is I, I did get lost for about three or four years because I was at a funny age. I wasn't really thinking at university at 24. I was like, wanted to get another job, but I didn't have the skills and qualities to maybe challenge for another job. Because yeah. what, what what I always found, Mark, is you get you get people who say to you, "Oh, that's unbelievable at United and Exeter or pro football," but that doesn't get you a job, and it don't get you a job anywhere else. You know, you're not you're not qualified in IT, you're not qualified in this, in that. So I thought, 
best, best thing I could do really just to start again and, and this is where I felt I was kind of going I re, not regress in a bad way I had to take a few years step back to start again and I, how, I, how I describe it is almost like going back to 18 and do my A levels or a degree again to go forward yeah. so so that, that's how I looked at it so you're like tw- I was 28 when I made the decision to go back and study but possibly through the difficulties of choice that's probably the best one I ever made because like from then I've got like I've done a degree in sports science and I did my teacher training call and then I got a master's degree and then I've been collecting that for over 15 years so that, that was the right call to, to make but it took time to make it because I was almost I wanted something immediately it would have been great if somebody said to you oh Alan yeah we've got a coaching role at Exeter full time I would have done it but it, the, the job just wasn't a bit and I wasn't getting the offers so I had to make a call on it yeah. and, and those yeah that, that idea of kind of winding about the clock to as if you're 18 again mm-hmm. very daunting and yeah. we, we, we hear this in, in cricket I hear it across other sports you ask your players um, what will they do if they, if they if they have to retire or they're not going to make it and they can be very fixated just on the one outcome and there's statistic, the statistical evidence is that very few people do get a prolonged career in, in elite yeah, yeah. sport because of course that's the nature of it there's only so many spaces Absolutely. so and what you've moved into in terms of your teaching and your, and your research is very much um, along the lines of, of, of what we talk about in terms of in cricket so what would you describe your research interests as being yeah, well, I, I, because of my sort of applied experiences in football and some of the things I've seen in that world, my sort of interest might really lie in sort of how maybe players could be supported better. Not not necessarily on the transition of retirement or exiting the game, but, but maybe on the support while they're in the game. Like you just mentioned, Mark, before, I think the, the key really for any athlete, especially in football, is to try and get a career to 35, 36, where you play lots of games, you've had lots of experiences, and, and you've had a good career. But unfortunately, lots of players are exiting at different ages. There's loads of movement in football. You know, if you if you think about the team that you follow, have a look at their team photo from three years ago and look at it now. There's probably be about 15, 16 players moved on. Now, moving on can go in different directions, but unfortunately, a lot of it can be like downward. So you're going from Premier League to League One, don't really work out there. Then you're in National League. Then you you know you're floating around that, and that and that can have like high high implications on where your family is you know you might be married you might have kids in schools it doesn't work out a particular club you have to move them somewhere else so so I think I think there's lots of challenges to, to, to look at but ultimately it's, for me Mark it's all about trying to stay in the game that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the key okay. that's the key and where do you th- it, it, it probably doesn't it probably isn't fair to say it just resides in one place but the responsibility for does that su- players being supported or players having the ability to to cope with the different stresses and strains? Where where is that? Is it something that clubs need to do a lot more of, or is it more about placing some of that to the the individual player or groups of players? So I, I think it comes within your development at youth team level. I think I think that's the key for me. But it's changed a lot. I mean, like since my day. If you, it was a it was a bit more rude. I, I think in my day back it was too much the other way. It was too much maybe too much ruthlessness, but football's a ruthless game, so I, I didn't get it at the time, but 
you're thinking to yourself, why, why are you having a go at me? Why are you, why are you, you know, saying this? Why are you saying that? And I'm thinking, when I come out of the game, I thought, well, if I can't, if I couldn't cope with that, or it affected me, how am I going to cope at Anfield? Or how, how are you going to cope at, at Goodison Park or at Highbury back then, Arsenal or? White Hart Lane with like loads of fans giving you abuse and criticising you and you know so you, it's almost like it was a tough love back then and I think since then over this last 20-25 years I think it's swung too much the other way I think it's too much protection now in there you know they, they, they stopped all the jobs they stopped cleaning boots they stopped sweeping showers they stopped they stopped sweeping up the gyms and stuff like that and, and I think these days it's like it can be a very comfortable existence for a player but when the moment comes that they have to step up into that first team level of football that, that's the key yeah. and I think if they're not prepared for the things that are going to come and the change it's, it's the change mark for me there's, there's so much can happen on a daily basis injuries deselection left out of the team <clears throat> falling out with a teammate falling out with a manager falling out with a coach negative media coverage all these things can have an impact on your mental health yeah. you know, and, and if you can't deal with that if you've not got the tools and the and the strength and the will to sort of bypass that, you can you can soon end up with issues, you know. So I, I think what what is quite powerful for say these players in the, the pro game, but also in, in an amateur environment, is some of the ways that they can be more resilient are in the sport naturally, like you say. Sure. You lose a game, you've got a choice. You can you can dwell on it and reflect on all the bad things, or you can use it to say, well, what can we learn yeah. from? Yeah. yeah. And and some of that element of yeah, the old school where you'd have the you know the, the teacups flying around yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Although we, we wouldn't want to encourage that, some elements of that 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 tough love, as you say. Can be again. It's all about moderation and the balance of it. Used to say to people, "Well, if I manage to get through this, then I can kind of get through yeah, anything." Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, there is that interesting thing, and I I, I tend to uh, agree with you in a, in the broader sense as well that maybe with some ways of approaching well-being, it can be a lot more about trying to, um, I guess, sterilise environments where you say, "Well, we'll take away." any challenges and make things as comfortable as we can which is, is, is appropriate in some cases but doesn't really prepare you for the, the day to day when it's going to be, be like that yeah, now yeah. I've I, I, I realised a little bit here yeah. of some of the some of the things that you've mentioned with say that how to deal with um, with deselection and, mm. and things like that but in your in your, in your study and your research you've, you've drawn quite a bit from from things that players can do which are good for their mental health which aid performance such as self-talk and, and visualisation and imagery yeah, yeah. Um, briefly what, what, how would you advocate that to someone who's either a professional or a keen amateur player to say what benefit they can have for their game well I think, I think that the, the sort of the, the, the self-talk and the, and the imagery and the visualisation and the sort of relaxation techniques that you mentioned out there, they're like known as like cognitive skills, but I think sort of throughout my research and I'm reading some stuff like that, Nesty's work's really good. I think there's other, there's other things that we can offer or sports psychologists can offer in that environment that, that maybe is slightly different and slightly fresher and newer. 
and that is whenever the player has sort of an issue or, or something that they need to to get off the chest or deal with if they come and see or speak to the sports psychologist confidentially in a one-to-one basis what they can do at that moment then is almost get them to look at where they're at at that time and, and what they want to do and what they want to get to I think thinking about deselection is probably one of the biggest ones because Premier League squads are now about 25 players you can only have 11 on a match day so potentially you're going to get six seven players who are not picked every week six seven are going to be sat on the bench and it's getting them to think about what can they do at that period of time to get them back into that starting 11 and that could be performance based it could be broader and I think the key Mac is to get me to be as honest as possible and to think about what's the broader life like what's it like at home are you doing anything that you shouldn't be doing are you not are you gambling are you doing this are you doing that anything that can make them feel a little bit happier to think a little bit better to get themselves back in, into the starting eleven. Now that that sounds a, that sounds fluffy and ideal and lovely because some players may have um, they might not open up, they might not tell you about those things. But I think if you can build the trust, trust is huge in that environment, isn't it? I'm sure that the, the sort of cricket environment's the same way, where you can go to somebody and know that they are fully confidential with you and that is not going to go anywhere out of that room you know you're not going to go run into the manager or you're not going to go run into one of the coaches and say oh you never guess what Alan Tong's just told me that's absolutely crucial part of the work and I think if that happens sports psychologists won't be working in that environment much longer yeah. so so for me it's, it's, it's sometimes about getting the player to look at their identity to look at where they're at where they're at now where they want to go to and and just making sure that everything in their lives is in alignment at that current time. Some players will probably moan about it. Some players will probably say, oh, he's left me out of the team again. I'm fed up with this. But I think given time, it's all to do with getting the player to choose the right course of action, isn't it, in order to maximise their way. And then you, you stay in the game longer, you earn more money, you get better at what you do. So it's all win-win. Because yeah. I, think, I think as well, if, if you can get the player that... Hopefully, if he is going to exit the club, he'll be going upwards. You know, if you can work with him from a mental perspective and get him doing the things that he should be doing, he might get a move from Man United to Real Madrid, or you know, from a, instead of going downwards, you don't want to be going downwards, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of how I'd like sort of compartmentalise that sort of cognitive skills against like we existential sports psychology is like what nested terms it's so so a lot of looking at that, at that sort of side of it as well. And that's great. I think people listening could go to themselves whether it's sport or their, their day job absolutely, and start that, that reflection of absolutely, it absolutely Mark absolutely so it's looking at everything you know I've been doing it recently we're thinking like you know how can I get back I need to get a bit fitter I need to do this because doing those things makes you a little bit happier and, and we know happiness can get you feeling better it makes you it makes you look at things differently and it, and it gets you making better choices you know when you're a bit frustrated or your mental health is a problem you, you know you, you, there's a bit of depression kicks in there we don't think as straight as we, as we, should, as we should be doing so just just aligning those like little things and looking at in a broader perspective not just in a performance perspective so this is difficult because sports psychologists it is all about performance I'm not a psych I'm, it's not about broad for me but um, if you're getting those two things in alignment you've got a better chance of doing something you know more constructive yeah. or, or positive absolutely so I, I think I've always always been 
trying to, I guess, sell to whether they're players or coaches. If you've got a happier player, they're more likely to, to perform better. Of course, mate. Absolutely, that. yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? So, so yeah. oh, oh, in this area, I think I saw, I see this. One of the examples I use in in, in cricket is. One of the things that made Alistair Cook so successful as a player was his mental skills. And one in particular, which is very very much in tune with what you've said, is that he certainly seems to have been someone who really understands himself and was able to say what his strengths were and what his, his areas for development were and constantly have an engagement with them and work out some things as well out of his control, just drop them and say, well, I'm not going to worry about that because it's something I can do. So... If we've got that kind of, I guess the authenticity of people makes them have those those stronger um, kind of mental health um, features. If if you like, flipping back, I guess to the kind of beginning of this story. Even though maybe your eyes weren't looking at it in this way at the time, was there anyone in, say, at Manchester United or, or, or anywhere else that? As well as the sort of the, the strong characters that you mentioned, someone that did seem to be that 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 have that balance around their life where they, the things were aligned and that contributed to their success. Well, I think that's a tricky one, Mark, because I think every human being on the planet has got some level of issue. You know, like I said back in the days of of my football experiences that a lot of them like you know, drink drinking after training and stuff like that and because you're a young player coming through the system you know you, you look at that and you think to yourself alright oh, to, to be a player I must be I've got to be part of the crew and you know and, it, and it's not that at all I think I think the lack, lack of education back then has hopefully improved 100% you know since I exited the game but for me there still is a lack of good quality support within the day-to-day basis of elite sport. I think it's improved. I think there's some some great sports psychologists, some great health and well-being people, and we, we know that the educational support's there and things like that, but I'm talking about now, when you're in the midst of a tough competitive season, you want to go to speak to somebody, I think there is still that little void where it could be a lot better, i.e., i.e., I don't want to go to the manager because I don't want him thinking that I'm not up for it. I don't really want to tell my mum and dad because I don't want to see them and upset them that I'm struggling in this environment. So I think like a deviation point or someone to go up and say, Mark, I need to chat to you, yeah, and then somebody who understands me, that I can get it off my chest, and not necessarily you telling me, Mark, what to do, it's you getting me to be more authentic, like you mentioned, to realise where I am and what I can do better to improve myself, I think that's really missing in an elite sport environment. And do you, would you advocate for it being, yeah, someone that is separate from that mm. existing structure? Yeah. Well, the, th- the thing we, the thing I'm reading, Mark, a lot at the moment is we need to get more clinical psychologists within elite sport. Not everything's about depression and mental health. It might be just a little issue that I need to speak about in, in order to see myself better, that I can get better at what I do. Just because I come to you and say, I've been de- deselected on Saturday, like I'm fed up with it, that doesn't mean I'm depressed. It doesn't mean I need to see a clinical sports psychologist. But everything you read at the moment seems to be, oh, we need clinical psychs in football clubs and elite balls. No, we don't. We need somebody who understands the sport, who understands the person, and can give them something of worth to help them get better at their job. No, I, I think that perspective is crucial. We have a lot in society as a whole, never mind just sport, about 
people's understanding of mental health being pretty limited in that as soon as mental health gets mentioned they start to reach for the diagnosed disorders as absolutely. if that's all that it is it is absolutely right you know and and some of these these areas and the way that you've articulated it i think is fantastic that it's it is about doing things not just to stop you being unwell but actually to get you to where you want to be and it's aspirational isn't it of course it is you know we're all striving to become the best that we come into that's a a, a big part of like the existential psychology like you mentioned before like it's it's to be more yourself and more authentic you know i think there was um like looking at this this is not new stuff this this was spoke about the ancient greeks times with aristotle and socrates and i think i think there's a there's a logo on the temple of delphi uh, that says know thyself you know and and it, and it is, it's all about self-knowledge and, and self-knowledge that you know that if you get a problem mark in the future, instead of burying it and just handing yourself over to fate, you, you've got more confidence then that you're likely to face up to it and move through it again. We're, we're all on a journey that ultimately we can't comprehend as human beings. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. But what we can do is, is know ourselves better in order to react better to the, to the, the, the difficulties that elite sport throws us. Yeah. That's excellent, and I think anyone listening can draw those um, those lessons into other areas of their life as well. Yeah, whether it's a, whether it's football, whether it's um, accountancy, teaching, whatever it is, there's all things there which I think through the prism of sport would make it a little bit more relatable, perhaps yeah, as well. Absolutely, Mark. And you know, you mentioned about like one of the good books that, that sort of that I read about Man's Search for Meaning about Victor Frankl in the concentration camps. <laughs> Uh, and, and you know a, re- a real hard-hitting text but Victor argues that the more what he saw in the atrocities and the brutality of those of those camps were the people that had something that they were trying to keep a will for i.e. they're going to finish a book or they're going to see the, a loved one again when they get out of the camp with the more chances of, of, of surviving the conditions a lot of people he said in the camps I were just giving up and dying because they had they had nothing to they had nothing to to, to work towards you know, if you look at that those extremes conditions you know to, to sort of look at it in that respect is a bit brutal and a bit hard hitting but but I think his message is you know if, if you can if you can strive towards something and, and something that, that means something to you you're more likely to have a better mental health perspective than somebody who's just not striving towards anything. Yeah. That's great, and I think uh, we could do we couldn't do any better than finish on that that point. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, sure. Man.